And uh, so, uh, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7. I'm just kidding, Brother Fox, a little bit. Uh, razzing him some. I noticed he led singing right-handed again tonight. And uh, by the way, I had a wonderful compliment paid today to the choir just to pass on to the choir members. Somebody went last night to a concert somewhere and heard some people sing and I don't remember what group it was. I wouldn't call the name if I did remember, but I don't remember what group it was. But these are professional people. And they said, First Baptist Choir is better than that. And uh, so anyway, just so you know that, uh, you know, people notice the quality and that reflects time and labor and work. And, uh, you know, people just don't get up and, and sing together like that without some rehearsal and time invested and uh, so I appreciate that, and it's a good testimony all the way around. So in 1 Corinthians, the title of the message tonight would be Gifted Carnality. I have preached this message before and called it Abnormal Carnality, uh, but just so that the two messages don't get confused, I'm going to call it Gifted Carnality. Um, but let me, show you, let me show you where I'm getting this. Look at verse 7. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, which, by the way, how many of you know the church at Corinth is known for being the most troubled church in the New Testament. How many of you knew that? Okay, now, how many of you knew this? There is no record of the church of Corinth having a pastor. Did you know that? Read the book carefully. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, there is no record of the church at Corinth having an elder bishop or pastor. And for that matter, I don't know if they had deacons. Uh, so, so it may speak well, uh, like of the church at Philippi that had elders and some of the churches that said, you know, they had elders and bishops and deacons and so forth. It may speak well of those offices that churches seem to do better when they have some biblical leadership. Um, and so, but there's no mention of that here. And that's why everybody got up in the services and it was known for confusion. It just, everybody kind of did what they felt like doing. And Paul said, it's not really a good idea later on in the book. But notice what he says in verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift. He's talking about the people at Corinth. Ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You come behind in no gift, he says. He's talking about the spiritual gifts. He will spend all of chapter 12, all of chapter 13, all of chapter 14 talking about spiritual gifts. Four, uh, three chapters he spends talking about spiritual gifts. And he said, you guys are not behind in any of those gifts. You have them all, and you have them richly blessed upon the church. But now I want you to look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. Get this, for ye are yet carnal. The insinuation there is, is that there is a time that it's anticipated that you would be carnal. You know, First of all, let me ask you, when, when a child gets saved at five years old or six years old, would you expect them to be a fully developed spiritual Christian at that time? No. They would be, in most senses, carnal. Okay? They're not matured. They're not grown. 
they probably don't even know how to be led of the Spirit or guided by the Spirit. I would expect them to be a little childish, wouldn't you? And uh, so there is that. And then what about a person that just got saved last week? Would you expect him to be a little carnal? Yeah, probably so. He just got saved last week. He, he still may have some bad habits to shuck. He, he may still have some chemical dependencies that he's got to deal with. He may still have some mental images that he ne- needs to deal with. And being saved a week, a month, or even a year is not long uh, to, to deal with things like that. So would that be what you would call normal carnality? I would think so. I think I could cut the guy slack and say he's a new Christian. What about the guy that's been saved 25 years and still acts like, you know, he's just kind of a selfish guy, full of pride and arrogance, and, and uh, he's still carnal at a time when he should have been spiritual. Boy, especially if he's been in a good church and listened to preaching, um, if he's been around leadership, if he's had if he's had uh, had teaching and discipleship, you would expect that by now he's not carnal any longer. But if he is, I would call that abnormal carnality. I would call that carnality that is extended beyond the point that it should be. Notice again now in this verse, for ye are yet carnal. This is chapter 3, verse 3. Notice the signs. For whereas there is among you envying, strife, and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? So he gives like four different signs here. I, you could count it five if you wanted to put walking as men, um, but, but I'm going to count four. You could really even count three carnal. Uh, you, you could count envying, strife, and divisions because he says, are you not carnal and walk as men? That's kind of the same thing. Are you not carnal, walking as men? Kind of the same thing. Um, but I put four things here. Um, envy is uh, interesting. It is the word heated uh, in the Greek. And uh, the idea is, uh, it, it, if you look at it from a positive point of view and, and try to put a, a, a good, and you could put a good spin on it, uh, zealous or ardent favor. This is people that are really uh, enthusiastic about something. Um, And uh, does not the Bible say that the Holy Spirit lusts to envy? Uh, That he he envies our life, he wants our life to count for the Lord? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? And so there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit covets you and me and our time and our energies for the Lord's purpose. So there is that sense in which envy can be a good thing. The Holy Spirit says, look, I'm, I'm envious for you. He lusts to envy. He wants us to serve Christ with all our heart. And uh, that's in Galatians, I believe. Not going to go there tonight. But there is a positive way that this word envy can be used. Most, mostly, though, it's negative when we talk about envy. And, it, and it's kind of like jealousy, but it's not the same thing exactly. Jealousy is the fear of uh, being replaced. Envy is wanting what someone else has. Not exactly the same thing. Um, but it has to do with favor and opposition, too. I'm in favor of it, or I'm in opposition against it. And that's the idea with envy. And it's heated, passionate, passionate I want it, or passionate I don't want it. You know, uh, a few years ago, people went to the polls that way. 
and they were envious for their candidate. And on both sides, there was lots of passion um, and uh, so forth. And I could really get you stirred if we went into some details on that. So, but that's not my purpose there is to stir you about that this evening. But understand, that's one of the signs of being carnal, is this kind of envy. And then the second sign is strife. The word means quarreling, wrangling, contention, debate, strife, or variance. And uh, that's, that's what the word means. So envy and strife, what does that give you? The idea of not getting along. We're, we're, we're in opposition to each other. How are horses on a team going to pull the wagon if they're fighting each other? They're not. It turns out to be one big bedlam in the traces uh, if, they're, if they're bucking each other. Um, so the, the horses need to pull together if they're going to accomplish a task. And uh, there's a third word, envy, strife, and divisions. Um, the word is, uh, and I'm not quite sure where to put the, the emphasis on the right syllable here. Um, it is dicostasia uh, or something like that, but it, the word di gives the idea of two, and stasia is sides. It's the idea of having two sides. It's the idea of disunion, of dissension, of division, and sedition. And that's the idea. So all of that is pictorial of carnal. Now, the, the idea behind carnal is flesh. So I'm going to ask you to keep your place in Corinthians and turn to Galatians, if you would. Galatians is just a little bit to your right. Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> and we're going to look at the works of the flesh just to remind you of these things. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 19. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest. That means they're fully shown. Manifest means many-sided. They're out in, out in public. They can be seen. Not much hidden here. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Now notice the sexual sins that are incurred here or that are listed here. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. Okay, those are all sensual sins, dealing with sensuality. Then he comes to the next verse, and he deals with idolatry, witchcraft, those are religious sins, and uh, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and uh, a lot of that has to do with attitudes, but uh, seditions and heresies has to do with doctrine. So understand this, there is an influence that this attitude of the flesh has even on what one believes about the Word of God, about doctrine. Um, and then notice more attitudes, envyings, okay? But then notice this, actions, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. People that do this, and what you don't see in the English here is that in the Greek, the verb is do those things habitually and continually. That's the Greek verb. Um, and it's so the idea of doing these things cons cons consistently, continually, habitually. In other words, if you're doing these things habitually all the time and this is your lifestyle, you're not saved. Now, is it possible for a saved person to do any one of these things any one time? Yeah. But if you make a habit in your life of these things, it's a good indication that you're not even a saved person. And so, 
That is the works of the flesh. So these are all the signs of carnality. The signs of carnality are envy, strife, divisions, and being influenced by the flesh. Now, um, notice um, when you're influenced by the flesh, it is doubtful that you're influenced by what else? What would be the other influence in your life? The Spirit. Uh, Read on in verse 22. But, I'm still in Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance against such there is no law. And so obviously if one is influenced by the flesh, you're not going to be much influenced by the Spirit. By the same token, if you're influenced by the Spirit, you're not going to be much influenced by the flesh. As a matter of fact, that's what Paul was meaning back in verse 16 when he said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, you're not going to do both. If you walk in the Spirit, the flesh is going to have no power. If you walk in the the flesh, the Spirit's not going to have much influence either. And so, understand. So Paul's Look at Paul's plea to these gifted people who were also guilty of being carnal. What I want you to see is the contradiction in their life. Okay, these were gifted people. In chapter 1, verse 7, so that you come behind in no gift. And yet he said, you guys are carnal. Abnormally carnal. You've been carnal longer than you should have been. There is a certain amount of time that is given to people to grow in Christ and to not be carnal any longer. But you're past that time, buddy. You're past it. You're abnormally carnal. And yet, you are some of the most gifted people I know. Now, is is that a contradiction? How can that be? Well, understand that spiritual giftedness has little to do with a person's character. Um, and a lot of the spiritual gifts are actually uh, practical, outworking things like preaching, uh, teaching. And you know what? That's why, that's why we hear of so many preachers that have washed up. And listen, I have heard guys preach powerful messages because they knew how to pull the, the heart strings, the cords of the heart, I've seen preachers take you on a roller coaster ride. I mean, you're laughing one minute, crying the next. They're really good at this. They can get you to laugh and you're belly laughing. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, this is so funny. The next moment, you've got tears running down your cheek and they're taking you on an emotional roller coaster ride. And two weeks later, you hear they were caught in a gay bar. How did that happen? How did that happen? Or you heard the guy got caught cheating on his wife. Or you heard he embezzled 25 grand from the church. How did that happen? I heard the guy preached and, man, he he had me wanting to come forward. No, if he's the kind of guy that I think he is, he probably had you forward. Those guys know how to work the system. I'm telling you, if they came in here, they could get half the church to the altar. You might not remember it long enough to get to the car. But they'd have you down there because, I don't know, I'm I'm not even going to speculate on what their purposes are. 
I just want you to understand they are gifted men. But that doesn't mean that their character is right, and it doesn't mean they're filled with the Spirit, and it doesn't mean that they're righteous men. Okay? They, they may be gifted spiritually, and what you see them do is exercising their gift. Their ministry gift. They're exercising their ministry gift. But in their life, really, the Spirit has little control. Mostly it's the flesh. And you know what? When churches are full of that kind of thing, you get exactly what you see there in chapter 3 and verse 3. You get envy and you get strife and you get divisions and you get carnality and you get men walking and acting like men and not like brothers. So, let's look at Paul's plea to these gifted people. Go back to verse 10. He's talking to these gifted people in verse 7. He says, look, you come behind nobody in the spiritual gifts. There's nobody has more than you and nobody has better than you. But look at what he says in verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, can you plead by a higher name than that? I beseech you. What's the Greek word for that? I beseech you. Beg. I beg you. That's not Greek, that's English. Um, but that's what it is. Beseeching is begging, it's pleading in a high degree. I beseech you, in the name of Jesus, I beseech you. You can't plead by a more powerful name than that. And what's he pleading with them? That ye all speak the same thing. Now, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean everybody's favorite color is going to be red. Okay, how many people's favorite color would be red? You like red. You really like red. Okay, how many like green? All the green folks, raise your hand real high. Um, all the blue folks, raise your hand real high. Oh, blue, man, that was a seller. We ever paint this church, we're going to paint it blue, Brother Fox, blue. And uh, blue will do, and uh, blue for you. And uh, so anyway, blue, 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 all right. But you know what? That doesn't mean that uh, everybody's going to agree on the color. If we, were, if we laid five pieces of carpet out here in front of you, I'm going to guarantee you not one piece would get unanimous. Okay, that doesn't mean we all have to think the same thing. When he says that you all speak the same thing, he's talking about the, the Word of God is to be our guide. That you all speak the same thing. What is that? Well, let's begin with, the, with, with our statement of faith. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Okay, can you all say that? The Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, Jesus is the Son of God. Okay? We're, there are some things about which we are united that is bigger than the color of the carpet. Do you understand that? And that's what he's getting at, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together. <laughs> now, here's, here's what I thought about. Elsie and I just put together, we finished putting, that, putting together that, uh, that jigsaw puzzle that Brother and Mrs. Fox gave us for Christmas. They had one of those drones fly over our piece of property and take a picture of highway Highway 81 going to the south, and Highway Z going to the east, and there's my house, and there's my garden, and there's my 
old pickup truck parked in the yard to keep the deer out of the garden, and uh, there's the pond, and they took a picture of that, and then they sent it off to some company that, that made a picture out of it, and then they cut it into a jigsaw puzzle. And then, for some reason or other, they mixed those pieces all up. So we had to put them all back together. And, uh, well, you know what? I, I thought this about, about these pieces of, of a puzzle. Um, there's different sizes. Did you ever notice in a, in a jigsaw puzzle, some pieces are small and some pieces are really pretty big? And there's some pieces that are shaped kind of funny. Kind of like a, yeah, well, I won't, I won't describe them, but pieces of puzzles remind me of certain things. And then every piece of puzzle has tabs and, uh, and, and like pockets or, or joints, like a hip joint fits into a socket, that's the word. They, they have a socket. Did you ever notice some pieces in the puzzle have four sockets and, and no tabs? Some have four tabs and no sockets. How many know what I'm talking about? Okay, some have a tab on one side and a socket on the other. And some have, uh, they have the tab on this side and the socket on this side. Sometimes both sockets are here, but there's a tab top and bottom. You've got to get all those pieces together. And that blooming puzzle, that blooming puzzle had a dozen or 20 pieces that was just almost exactly the same. Even the color, it was a lot of trees. So even the color was not a dead giveaway. It was, boy, there were so many pieces that were so close. And it'd make me so mad. I think I found a piece. And I've got it in there, and it didn't feel quite right, but it did kind of fit. And Elsie comes along and says, that piece don't belong there. You know, like, she's my mother or something, you know. Um, and she'd take it, and, she'd, and then she'd find another piece, and she'd replace it and fix that. And finally, one night, she stayed up till 2 o'clock in the morning and finished that puzzle. And, uh, and I said, good riddance, put some puzzle glue on it so while it's together before one of the grandkids comes along and tears it apart. And uh, we'll have to do it all over again. But do you understand it gets jointed together? You know what, what I learned is when you get a piece that is in the right place, you don't have to force it. You don't have to wiggle it. It like drops right in place. It feels right. You know every one of those pieces that Elsie made me take out? Didn't feel right anyway. I can tell you they were just not exactly quite right, but they were pretty close. But the puzzle wouldn't fit until every piece got in its right place. Do you know a church is kind of like that? Every piece needs to be in its right place. And there's tabs and there's sockets and the tabs have got to fit in the sockets. The shapes have to coordinate and we need to work really hard at that. That's what Paul means when he says, look, I want you to be perfectly joined together. And then how does that mean? In the same mind and in the same judgment. Same mind and same judgment. Well, I did some thinking about that. I looked up those words, the the word for in the same mind is talking about thought, feeling, and will. And literally, I like this, it says arriving at the same meaning. And that's, that's a mark of a good church. We might not say things exactly the same way, but we've arrived at the same meaning. We've arrived at the same purpose. 
we've arrived at the same conclusion. We've arrived at the same understanding. That's being of the same mind. And then he talked about being of the same judgment. Now, normally, the word for judgment is the word krisis, uh, which, 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 from which we get our word crisis, but it, it, it is a different judgmental kind of word. But this word is gnome, G-N-O-M-E, and it means arriving at the same conclusion, at the same resolve, meaning we need to be resolved that the same thing needs to be done. We need to vote the same way. When it comes to doing God's will, we need, to, we need to come to the point of saying, this is what God wants, and I'm, I'm going to stand by it. And when a hundred people arrive at that same conclusion, it is a wonderful and blessed thing. I'm not talking about the carpet. It's never going to be that way with the carpet. It's never going to be that way if, if we talked about what to do with the lobby. Two people are never going to see that the same way. And you know what? They'd be kind of weird if they did. You know, I see it exactly. I can see some lady wanting to do the lobby in pink. How many guys would probably just on the grounds of right and wrong be opposed to that? You know, I would be opposed to that, you know, pink um, in the lobby. Now, if they want to do a lady's restroom in pink, I'm all for that. That's fine. I don't have to go in there, but I don't want to come in a pink lobby. Um, Anyway, do you see what Paul is doing here? Notice this. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment, but there's a problem. For it hath been declared, verse 11, it it hath been declared unto me, my brethren, and notice what Paul does here. He tells who told him. By the household of Chloe. Chloe. It's been told me by the house of Chloe. Now, you've got to understand, in a big city like Corinth, they didn't have a big church building where everybody met under one roof. They met in different households. I'm presuming that at times they all got together, but their unity really worked through elders that took each one of these little local household congregations and, uh, and, 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 and they led them that way because they didn't have these big mammoth church buildings that everybody could fit into in those days. Um, But the house of Chloe told him, he said, there are contentions among you. Now, the word contentions is, is, is the word for quarrels. These are synonyms. Debate, strife, variance. Um... Now, listen, I want you to understand, it's okay to have a different opinion. What it's not okay to have is a contentious spirit. Okay, if you've got a contentious spirit, you need to just go along with the Lord and fix, get that fixed. And the Lord will fix it if you'll go present it to Him and say, Lord, I've got, a, I've got an attitude here that's just contentious. I just love it to get in arguments with people. Um... Get that fixed. You're not doing yourself any good, and you're not doing anyone else any good with that kind of a spirit. Yeah, it's fine to have a difference of opinion, but it isn't isn't fine to have an attitude of variance. That's not what is good. So look at Paul's plea to these gifted people. They're gifted people, but they're carnal because they have these divisions and strifes. Now, here's where I'm coming to. 
the envy, strife, and divisions, the carnality, the fleshly influence, largely revolved around the personalities of men. Look at verses 12 and 13. We're coming right out of verses 10 and 11 where he pleads with them in the name of Jesus. Uh, Listen, I plead with you all speak the same things. There be no divisions among you perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. But there are contentions among you. And look at verse 12. Now this I say that every one of you saith, I am of Paul. And I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. And then he says, is Christ divided, or was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I didn't baptize anybody but Crispus and Gaius. Now, I'm paraphrasing there. That's not what the King James says. But I want you to understand, a lot of, a lot of splits in churches take place over personalities. But it isn't the personality that's the problem, it's the carnal spirit that's the problem. But every time, a carnal spirit will fuss over personalities. And uh, who's got the most authority, or who's got the most pull, or who's got the most pizzazz, or, or whatever that is. I want to tell you, there's, you know, if you study personalities, there's type A personalities and type B. Type A would be considered more your headstrong driven guy who's kind of a leader and a pusher, and uh, usually I don't like those guys real well, especially if they're the boss. They're pushing me to do what I already know how to do anyway, and don't have to be told when to do it or how to do it, Um, but anyway, there's the type A, and then there's the type B who's more the follower, the guy that has to be prodded along the way. But uh, that's only one study. There's the study that tells you that there's four types of personalities. There's the sanguine which is a happy-go-lucky guy, and he's usually a leader, but he leads by popularity. But then there's the choleric, who is a guy who usually is driven and gets things done, but nobody likes him because he leads by intimidation and uh, sometimes by guilt, and he pushes people. And then there's the phlegmatic guy who is the real, we would call him the laid-back guy, and then there is the melancholic who's depressed all the time. How many of you know a melancholic? Uh, you know, <laughs> they're the kind of people you never ask, how are you doing today? You no, know, just don't ask them that because they'll tell you. And you don't have time to hear it. Uh, so just move on. But, uh, but those are the four personalities. But then there are seven different spiritual gifts. That figures into it also. Uh, we've talked about this before. There's the prophet who would cut somebody's head off for the truth, and the mercy, who wants to have compassion and pity on the person that the prophet just slaughtered. And, uh, and then there's the teacher and the exhorter. They don't get along because the exhorter doesn't care if the facts are right as long as he encourages you. But the teacher, he wants the facts all right, so they'll argue all day over how the story really went, and, uh, and, and, and who knows. You, you, most of those stories you can't find where they were told the first time anyway, so you really can't check them out. But you just keep going to Baptist church conferences and hearing them repeated again. And each time they change a little bit um, because something will get added or, or subtracted. Uh, understand the exhorter and the teacher don't get along. And then there's the administrator and the servant. Those guys, the, the administrator's the chief and the servants are the Indians 
and they don't get along because one is in charge and wants to delegate all the work to everybody else, and the other people see him as a lazy dude because he keeps passing his work on to someone else. And the giver is the guy that quits giving and gets grieved because the others don't get along. But when the others do get along, he gets blessed, and, and he gives a lot, and he finances the work. I want you to see all of this enters into these things called personality. Do you know any perfect people? You know, I, I got to make a list here about people in the Bible that we have loved for years. I got to thinking about Noah. He got drunk. Abraham lied and married Hagar. Isaac lied. And uh, I don't know what else he did. He redug Abraham's wells, but it was like he couldn't have any ideas of his own. Jacob cheated and lied. He was really a, a, a cheater. Moses killed two Egyptians and proved that he had to temper later. Joshua kept forgetting to get God's permission to go do stuff. He kept doing stuff without asking. And Joshua had his flaws. Gideon was hiding in a wine press when they found him. When the angel found him and said, I'm going to use you to deliver to kill, I think it was a hundred and some thousand people. I'm going to use you to kill them with 300 guys. And, uh, but, but he was kind of a, of a coward. And remember, he kept going back for signs. He just couldn't quite be sure. Uh, and then Samson, he had problems with his eyes. He couldn't keep his eyes on his own business. He had problems with the female race. He, he, could, he just couldn't keep his eyes and he couldn't keep his hands off. Samson had his problems. Samuel raised sacrilegious sons. David committed polygamy, adultery, and murder. Solomon was an ultra-polygamist. He committed fornication and idolatry, even building temples to false gods, and yet he wrote the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Jonah was a nationalist hypocrite and a legalist, but God used him to turn a city to, 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 to God. Peter savored the things that be of men. He denied the Lord. He cursed and swore. Thomas was a doubter. James and John were sons of thunder, meaning that they had bad tempers. Simon Zelotes was a nationalist and an insurrectionist. Paul was a Pharisee, a hypocrite, an enemy of Christ and the church who imprisoned and murdered God's people. And then I got to thinking a little more modern, not Bible characters, but you know, most of us have all got King James Bibles in our hands. But I've been doing a lot of research on that this week. And, and uh, though, though they were considered to be the best scholars of their day, you know what they said about themselves? If you really wanted a really scholarly work of the manuscripts, you would commit it to the Church of Rome. I'm glad they didn't. Um, but they considered the scholars in Rome better than themselves. Those same guys that translated the King James Bible that we have loved and revered through this day, those guys baptized by sprinkling, they transliterated the word baptizo into baptism instead of immersed. They were covenant theologians. <laughs> they believed in figurative interpretation, and they believed Israel and the church were the same thing. They didn't believe in the right church government. They had Episcopal church government. They believed in synods and provinces and dioceses and councils and creeds and bishops and presbyteries and layers of hierarchy. 
they didn't believe about elders, pastors, and bishops what we believed. They believed they were all same different offices. They believed in a state church. The Anglican church, they believed, was the state church, and they did whatever King James ordered because he was the head of the Anglican church. By the way, if you read the preface to what the King James translators wrote about the King James, those guys did not believe the TR was perfect. Though it was the better text, they didn't believe it was perfect. They considered when they did their works, all of the manuscripts, all of the texts, the Hebrew, the Greek, the Septuagint, the Vulgate, they laid them all out, all of the different languages. They considered all the translations, even those that were done from heretical positions, like Origen and Jerome and Tertullian and uh, Tychonius, who was a Donatist, and Aquila, who converted back to Judaism, and uh, Symmachus and Theodosian, who were Ebionites and didn't believe in the deity of Christ, and Erasmus, who was a Catholic priest. They considered all previous English translations, the Wycliffe, the Tyndale, the Coverdale. As a matter of fact, the King James Bible was an update of the Bishop's Bible of 1569. Actually, they criticized all the texts in their preface, which is, by the way, it took me four hours to read. Um, because it's thick. It's really thick. And I mean thick. And you've got to think to be able to read it. They didn't even believe their own translation was perfect. Listen to what they said. This is a quote. Truly good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we needed to make a new translation or to make a good one of a bad one. Our intent was to make a better translation out of a good one or to make from many good ones one especially good one, not to be justly objected against. That has been our task and our target. My point is this. God used those imperfect men with their imperfect thinking to give us a really good version of the English Bible. God uses flawed men all the time. Look at chapter 1, verse 26. Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things which are. Why? Why? 29 answers a huge question. That no flesh should glory in his presence. Listen, God chooses to use flawed men so he gets the glory. Now, what am I getting at? Why am I telling you this? What is the point of this message? This year sometime, you guys are going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to make a choice because I'm nearing the end of my race. <laughs> and uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to have to retire soon. Um, it's It's coming. And uh, every day, I just pray to get through another week. Uh, Wednesday afternoon, I laid two hours on the couch and said, God, give me enough strength just to go preach Wednesday night, please. And he gave it to me. I got enough. 
I got enough gas in the tank to get through Wednesday night, and then Thursday was another problem. You know what Thursday was? I began getting ready for Sunday. I'm just running low on gas, and you're going to have to make a choice. You're going to have to call a new pastor. Now, a lot of people, when they think about calling a new pastor, all of a sudden the lights all come on because they're thinking, here is our chance to correct everything that's wrong in the world. We're going to call a guy who his messages are full of meat, but he only preaches 20 minutes. We're going to call a guy who is uh, happy but sad. A guy who's full of energy, but he's contemplative too. A guy that visits all the houses but leaves people alone. We're going we're to fix whatever, whatever complaints we've had for the last 35 or 50 years. We're going to fix all of that in this one move. We're going to call the perfect guy. Now, I do have one fear in this whole thing. I want to tell you it's not the deacons. The deacons are good men. Uh, I, would, I would have to differ with anybody who took any of my deacons down in a word barrage. Um, if somebody wanted to have a fist fight, I'd probably have to use a ball bat because I don't know how good I'd do with fists. But, um, but I could probably hold my own with a ball bat. But I would, I would fight for my deacons. They are good men. They don't worry me. But this does worry me. What if they can't find anybody good enough to meet everybody's expectations? I've seen churches go through this all my life. A pastor who's been there for years and years and he finally retires or dies. And the people, the people think, now we're going to go Christmas shopping. Let's go to Walmart and we'll have our list. This is what we want in a preacher. And now we get to pick our preacher and let's go to Walmart and let's go shopping. And you know what? I've seen pulpit committees finally all resign because they work and work and work and work and nobody that they bring to the people is good enough. Some will vote yes, some will vote no. And... uh, That troubles me. And usually that's because, usually that's because people have built their loyalty around a personality and not around the truth. Listen, the Bible's pretty clear about what you need in a pastor. I thought about that passage in Acts. Now, this is not talking about a pastor. It's talking about deacons. But it really gave three pretty simple things. They've got to be honest in reputation. They've got to be full of the Holy Ghost in wisdom. And they've got to have willing servants' hearts. They're going to serve tables. That's it. You choose them. We'll ordain them and put them into the ministry. And that's what the apostles said. You pick them out and we'll approve them. And uh, they chose seven men. But from those seven men, Stephen was such a good man that he ended up getting himself martyred. And Philip became an evangelist and actually ended up not even serving the church in Jerusalem, but going off into mission work up in Caesarea. But you know what? It really, the, the standard is not in a man's personality. 
And, and I understand the temptation. The temptation is to compare Pastor Fox to Pastor Dietrich or Pastor Fox to Pastor so-and-so or Pastor Dietrich to so-and-so. How does this guy measure up compared to what we've been used to? You know what? That shouldn't even be the question because every guy is flawed. Every guy is flawed. You're not going to find the perfect guy. And you know what? You'll drive your pulpit committee to death. They'll work and work and work and work, and they will become so so disillusioned that one by one they'll begin to drop off and say, you know what, I'm going to resign because I don't think your expectations are realistic. There's no perfect guys out there. And uh, is Pastor Fox a perfect guy? No, ask Mrs. Fox. She'll tell you. Well, she probably wouldn't, but he's got his flaws. I know what they are, but I'm not going to tell you. Um, I want you to understand he's not a perfect guy, but you know what? He's got good character. He is qualified for the ministry, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, he's got my vote. I'm just saying. Um, I just want you to understand, he's not a perfect guy. And if you're expecting him to be perfect, well, you know, then that means you've been disappointed with me for 35 years because I'm going to tell you I am not a perfect guy. Um, I'm not a gifted evangelist. You know, some guys just love passing out tracts. I'm not a track passer outer guy. I've passed out plenty, but I only do it because I'm doing the work of an evangelist. Okay? I've preached the word, but I understand that to preach the word, you've got to do the work of an evangelist. Because I've come to realize nobody much cares what you've got to say when you preach the word if you don't do the work of an evangelist. And that's reaching out. That's work. But does that mean I'm perfect? No, I've got flaws. One day, one day, maybe you could give my wife some sodium pentothal, and she would tell you everything about me, all of the, all of the secrets, all of the dirt. She would tell it all, but you'd have to give her sodium pentothal because she's a confidential person. If you got to ever have a secret kept, give it to Elsie because she don't tell. There's stuff that she won't tell me that somebody asked her to keep in confidence. But she is my right arm, my wife, my friend, my lover. She is all of that to me. But she knows I'm not a perfect guy. I've got a temper. I've got a temper. And I can, I can go from zero to 60, I mean red hot, in a big hurry. And it don't take much. All I got to do is have an ingrown toenail and stub my toe. And all of a sudden, the world has got a whole different look to me. The other day, I was, went out, took a break from study, and went to split some wood. And I dropped a piece of wood down and caught my finger between the, the wedge on the splitting mall. And, oh, that hurt. Oh, I know exactly how Peter felt that night. Am I a perfect guy? No, I'm not. Is Pastor Fox a perfect guy? No, he's not. But you know what? I think I can speak safely for him. We both love you. And we both would die to tell you the truth. We have 
been called by God to deliver his word to God's people. And we care about the people that we serve. And that should count for a whole bunch. Because I'm telling you, there's hundreds of guys lined up to find a church that's got a bunch of money in the bank. And listen, the reason they're looking for a church now is <laughs> because they messed up the last one they were in. Okay, you just got to understand, it's, it's not a pretty world out there. And lots of churches are waiting two years before they get a pastor because there's not enough men to fill all the pulpits that need filled. So I'm just saying, you've got to get the standard right. The standard about which you pick a pastor had better be a biblical one. It had better not be measuring somebody by a personality. Uh, it had better be measuring somebody by biblical qualifications. It would do you good to sit down and reread 1 Timothy chapter 3 and see what those biblical principles are, those biblical guidelines, and to be thinking biblically when this decision time comes. Now, I'm not counting on it being in the next few weeks, but we never know these things, do we? Right now, I've so scheduled this year that I'm, I'm working until the 30th of September, and all of my time off, I'm saving till the last of the year. Uh, so, you know, sometime in there, the, the change is going to be, be being made. And I'm going to do my dead level best to prepare all of us to think biblically and to think rightly and uh, to think truly and honestly and to think with, with Scripture as our basis for our standard for what do we want uh, in this church, First Baptist Church of Wayland. Amen? And uh, so anyway... You, you think about those things. Remember, there are no perfect men, and uh, all of us are flawed, but God has chosen to use flawed men, and he does that.